Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. So I'm here to chat with Dr. Greg Rutledge, who some of us might have known as uh, a program director of the CCFPEM program here at McMaster University. Some of us will have trained under him as our supervisors and preceptors. Some of us will have trained him. (laughs) And some of us will just know him as uh, an all-around great guy. But I'm specifically here talking to him today because he's just assumed a new role as a uh, leader in our local milieu. So um, Greg is now the uh, officially, officially, a fish, right? right. <laughs> You're right. a fish Hot now. off the press. The uh, uh, chief of the emergency department at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. Um, and uh, we're really excited to have him chat with us a little bit about his perspective on what it means to be a great clinical leader. Okay, thank you. Great. Yeah, it's um, it's been so. I was interim chief for a time, so I have a little bit more experience in the in the leadership role than the official announcement. Um, and so I think each person has a different definition of what a leader is, and that's kind of how I started. And I remember uh, talking to my son about it, and and so I, I learned from a I was watching a hockey night in Canada of all places, and they defined a leader on there, which always stuck with me, which was a leader knows where they want to go, and has the ability to encourage and enlighten and and get people charged about going there. And it always stuck because if you're, if you're absent in either one of those facets, I think your leadership role. Mm-hmm. So if you can't generate any ideas, mm-hmm. not that you're exclusively having to be the one that generates the ideas, but you should mm-hmm. be generating some ideas and, or you cannot encourage people and get people excited about going in that direction. Mm-hmm. I think it's a place where you won't be an effective leader. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of where I ground myself as the, as the role. And I said to the group when I joined as the interim chief that I don't have the market cornered on every great idea. I think I'm here to facilitate those ideas mm-hmm. and move them forward. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think you have to have some, some, some hubris to say a great idea can come from anyone. Yeah. And if you, if you shut down to any individual thought, you're going to miss a great opportunity. And that can be mm-hmm. from a unit clerk, that can be from yeah. a nurse, that could be from a nurse manager yeah. or your colleagues. And if you avoid those because of the source, you're going to miss out on some great ideas. Yeah, that's really awesome um, to hear because I think that sometimes in um, medicine, and in healthcare, there's a bit of a hierarchy, whether or not it's perceived or hidden or just obliquely there, right? There's the mm-hmm. rank and file, there's, you know, your clinical appointment, your, you know, you have a chief, you have your academic appointment, you have your like ranks of professor, mm-hmm. associate, assistant. And so it's easy to like, kind of like just imposter syndrome into not speaking up. So I think yep. that as a leader, what you're saying is invite people in so that they can just throw any idea at you. Absolutely. I think I'm a firm believer in the airline industry's approach to this, right? That the co-pilot has to be as comfortable speaking oh, up yeah. if they're if they're going in a place they shouldn't go. And yeah. 
And I think we historically in medicine have not done a great job of that. I think we're becoming more insightful to that aspect of of things. And so again, it's, I think just, just not being that arrogant person to think that you've got it all figured out and, and Mm -hmm. sort of come with me sort of thing. I think you have to be open to, to many ideas. Yeah. The, the, um, the age of the Thanos like uh, yes. like dictator leader yeah. is yeah. probably sunsetting. Great, I um, wouldn't have known that reference six months ago, but my son got me into Avengers, so now I know. know. Yeah, I've been uh, dropping a lot of Avengers uh, yeah, analogies right. lately. But, well, right. I, I try to be equitably nerdy uh, across DC <laughs> comics and and well Marvel, played. and then also Star Wars, Star Trek, and Harry Potter, just to make sure all of nice. our listeners are uh, nice. are are okay with our pop culture references. But <laughs> um, but yeah, like I mean, I think that. Um, it really resonates with me because I think that um, it's really awesome to have leaders that have that perspective. Now, it's great to have that perspective. Now, how do you make it happen? How do you get the shy, new, first-year, new staff, because you've got several mm-hmm. of them right yeah. now, who um, may be you know, different gender, different ethnicity, mm-hmm. different uh, group that might not feel like they belong. They might feel like, oh, I trained somewhere else and I'm not, you know, yep. like able, empowered. How do you, how do yeah, you get it's a great, it's a great question. And, you know, everyone, any group spends so much time thinking about their hiring process and who they're going to hire and who they bring in. So you bring in these great individuals and then you don't do exactly what you're do what you're suggesting, mm-hmm. which is make them feel welcome, which is one thing. And the, making them feel welcome seems kind of soft, but but really make them feel engaged and part of the group. And yeah. so some of it is just doing more than just word speak. So it's mm-hmm. easy for me to sit in a meeting and say, I want to hear from everybody mm-hmm. and I'm open to any idea. But if you don't really follow through with that, mm-hmm. people are going to quickly learn that you're not genuine. And so, mm-hmm. you know, hire, bring, hire, surround yourself with really interesting people who have really great ideas and mm-hmm. then act on those ideas that come through. And so, mm-hmm. and that's, a, that's people who have been here for 20 years and that's people who have been here for 20 months. And, mm-hmm. and uh, and so when they come to me with an idea, um, having a closed loop to it so mm-hmm. that they don't just fire ideas against a fan and they mm-hmm. shoot out everywhere but nothing ever happens. Yeah. So instituting different communication skills, such or communication platforms like Slack, like WhatsApp, like mm-hmm. the things that are out there so that you can close the loop and say, we have one for nursing now. So the nurses will say, Greg, this isn't working. And I can grab hold of it and say, and circle back to them and be, Hey, we worked on it. Here it is. We yeah. fixed it. Yeah. And so then they know that you're not just here. You're yeah. not, you're genuine. Yeah. You actually agree with what you're saying. And it's yeah. not just the buzzword of the day that you're throwing out yeah. and same with physicians. I think we've have some great new hires here and new physicians, I think want to be comfortable clinically. And that's one of the best advice I ever got from one of my mentors was be a really solid clinician first and then do everything else. And so yeah. some of them are thinking about doing that first, but yeah. they know that, yeah their time will come and that they'll be as valued in their thought process outside of clinical work as, as, as a guy who's been here, a woman who's been here for 15 years. Yeah, that's great. Um, and so when you look at, uh, the lay of the land going forward, what are some, um, things that you think are on the horizon as a leader that we should all kind of pay attention to in healthcare? So I think the obvious ones that I'm sure most people talk about, we're a bit ahead of the curve here in the local area, not necessarily ahead of the curve provincially, but EMR is going to be a huge one for, yeah. for Emerge and leaders yeah. in Emerge and managing that. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember December 2017, like it was yesterday, and oh, it's, yeah. uh, it, was, it was not a fun time. And my wife will say it was not a fun time, but yeah. it, uh, it's a necessary time. And yeah. I think 
I mean, you can't really rail against computers in 2019. It's hard to no. it's hard to be on that island and say we don't need them. And it's yeah. been a great move for us and a fantastic, mm-hmm. and not necessarily with EMR that we use, but having EMR in general is, yeah. is just a, is a great thing. I think understanding the politics of today and how we fit into that. So mm-hmm. we're just in a bit of a funny situation as you look at Ontario health teams and yeah. how we can be effective in that, how we yeah. can leverage OTN and virtual visits and mm-hmm. how does that fit within Emerge, right? There's an obvious fit with internal medicine, there's an obvious fit with family medicine, but where do we fit within that? And, and uh, one of the things I firmly believe in is, is that it's not enough for us to be reactive anymore. So you can't come in, put a cast on somebody, stitch somebody up, mm-hmm. let them sober up and then send them on their way. Sometimes we're yeah. the only point of care for some of these, yeah. for some patients. And so we have to be mm-hmm. more proactive in our approach. And so leveraging EMR, leveraging OTN, leveraging our, our, our community consultations and yeah. where do we fit within that is going to be huge mm-hmm. um, as we move forward because the patient volumes are not going to decrease. The stress around admissions and ALC is not going to decrease. Mm-hmm. And that's such a big nut to crack that mm-hmm. sometimes we, I think, feel overwhelmed to do anything. Yeah. And so we've got to fit within that niche and figure out a way of how we can leverage those things. Yeah. We almost have to be um, part of a much bigger strap plan that's all connected you can think of us as a as a cog in the wheel but you know just like um if we don't have that cog then sometimes things break down so yeah, we, we have to be that stopgap we have to be 100%. that safety net people and are if fall we through. if we don't we'll be left out in the cold right yeah. so yeah. if we don't if we don't become part of that solution mm-hmm. we won't be at the right tables and and mm-hmm. as being a relatively new specialty in the realm of specialties mm-hmm. I think we always fight that that yeah. that ability that we're new and not getting to the table and yeah. and viewed as the emerge that this is this loud dirty place that no one wants to visit and that's yeah. fixing that within I think it's certainly at Joe's I can say it's a much it's one of the things I love about here is the administration really respects what we do yeah. and we get to those tables yeah. but but provincially and larger we need to make sure yeah. that we're at that table and yeah. and to be at that table you've got to come with some ideas yeah yeah for sure i think um we do have some neighbors to the south that have done some great innovations i think also bc has done some really cool stuff agreed so i think it's good to look across to different borders and share and mm-hmm. and get a sense of that because i think yeah you're right the 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 virtual consult like what does that look like mm-hmm. for emerge right? That's right i, I would yeah. i would think that most people would rather tap an iphone app and talk to me about whether or not like you yeah. know they need antibiotics for their throat and yeah. i have a, you know like there is evolving literature about people palpating on the lymph nodes you take a look and with the yeah. light is actually looking their consoles yeah, right? cellulitis follow-ups mental health follow-ups yeah. to be able to have, to be able to have a quick conversation yeah. the next day to just firm up your discharge i mean there's yeah, yeah i'm not saying that this is where it's going but uh, those are some of the yeah. conversations we have to have is yeah. where we fit yeah. how can and you can think of the resource savings of that yeah. of them not visiting the emerge and of all the churn that goes through from that yeah um yeah and so there's that that's the part that excites me i think yeah. um you know budgetary constraints as we move forward every year every hospital in the province is facing a, a, yeah. a shortfall that we've got to find savings and i think the hospitals to date have done a really good job of not having it as best they can impact patient care but yeah. i think they've cut the wedges tight as they can yeah. and now yeah. we're faced with really tough calls on, on yeah. where we save yeah. and and so they approach every institution and every department every yeah. merge department to find savings and so most of that has to be done on resource allocation and yeah. you know using the choosing wisely campaign are we are yeah. we you know are we doing mm-hmm. the right tests at the right time yeah 
And I think there's lots of things that we could do to be a little bit more efficient on the edges and margins, and maybe that will get us a couple more pennies here and there, right? Right, yeah, and not, and not lose the things that are really going to impact patient care. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, that's really exciting uh, to see you already thinking about well, probably about 15 years in the future. So <laughs> I don't know if it'll happen in your term, but, no, uh, but it's good that you're thinking about it because you can move other people along as you consult them and, and bring them along for the ride because uh, I'm sure there'll be someone up to uh, up next that'll take your take your seat and hopefully we'll continue to engage the new people as they come in and yeah that's the goal i mean you have to have you have to you have to be looking at who your replacement is down the road yeah someone in one of my mentors in undergrad said anytime you take a job start looking around for your replacement you might not see them right away that's right but uh but you need to know who you're looking for so that when you see them you latch on you make sure they know that they're the guy or gal that is gonna help you make the mark next mentor them yeah Yeah, for sure all right thank you very much All right, so I'm here with uh, Kaldeep Sidhu, who is our new chief here at uh, the Hamilton Health Sciences in the Department of Emergency Medicine within the Hamilton Health Sciences. I just want to take some time to welcome him to the Macambridge family. And I know that you previously were here and that you're coming back to us now. And so I um, wanted to sit down and have a chat with you about uh, perspective on leadership, because I think clinical leadership is something that We've seen in the southern Ontario section, there's been a lot of changes. There's some exciting changes. Um, and I think that you're one of those uh, big change makers. So maybe we can have a quick chat. Great. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, I feel excited about coming back. But at the same time, I feel like I never left. Um, you know, Mac is uh, uh, dear to my heart where I started. And um, I, I welcome the opportunity to, to be uh, back here and, and try to help out. Excellent. Um, so tell me a little bit from your point of view, like why did you get involved in clinical leadership? Because there are some people that uh, definitely gravitate towards it and some people might need a little nudging to kind of see it as a potential career path. And I thought maybe could you reflect a little bit on your leadership journey and how you got to where you are? You know, um, I, I never meant to, you know, be a, a a clinical leader. I never meant to be even a, a admin based, but um, um, I loved medicine. I loved looking after people, and and I loved the clinical uh, work. And um, I, I think that if you want to improve the clinical work and you want to improve the lives of of your patients, um, I think that's when you gravitate towards any opportunity that you uh, can have to make things better for your patients, and. Um, I think that's where that first committee ask and becoming involved in that. Um, and then from that, you become, uh, you know, asked quite a bit. And then you're asked to take on a leadership role and you hadn't even thought of ever uh, uh, becoming a leader. But a strong clinician that's advocating for their patients is a leader. Yeah, That's a really good perspective, like that everyone can lead. It doesn't matter if you have a title or not. Um, I think uh, with a fairly um, young physician group, I think that we're seeing um, with most places hiring up and having more growth in their kind of junior sector, I think that's a really inspiring message to put together is that if you care about something and you want to advocate for it, you're probably leading, you don't even know it. 
You know, when, when you're advocating and you're, you're working with the patient and with the staff for that benefit, and, and it can be anywhere from a high level trauma, you know, to um, a pediatric rhesus, to, to even a frail elderly that, you know, really wants to get home and you want to make sure with your gem nurses and your social workers that they're going to be safe. You know, you're advocating and you're leading and people see that. They see just how much you're, you're working or that you're passionate about your work for them. And I think that's, that's what we do as clinicians. We, you know, we, we serve people, we, we help people. And um, in terms of making the work meaningful and, and engaging people, I think when people see that you're very um, passionate and, and compassionate uh, about the work that you do, that's how you, you engage people. They, you model it. Um, you live it, and uh, and then you put in you know structures where um, people are able to do it. So putting in such of the supports as gym and social work and CCAC yeah. and is that moment that you have the eureka moment you have at the bedside. Sometimes is the moment that you then think, how could I make the system better? And I think that those are the moments where I think we all have to find it in ourselves to stand up a little bit and and lead a little bit because maybe someone else hasn't seen that or they're too busy taking care of other moving parts and that innovation really needs that leadership and that spark, right? That innovation that you have um, can really come from the bedside. You know, everyone gets up in the morning and goes into work or gets up in the evening and goes into work, which is probably more appropriate for Emerge. And, you know, you go in with the thought that you want to do good medicine, you want to do good things for people, you want to you know, do meaningful work. And at the end of the day, you know, as much as, you know, you can be impactful during your, your time, uh, whether it's on your shift in your, you know, uh, in your teaching, your interactions with the nurses, um, that's, that's being a system changer. Mm-hmm. You're changing the system by making things better for the people around you, the patients, the nurses, your other staff and your colleagues. Mm. Um, and, you know, carrying that from the bedside into some of the meeting rooms um, mm-hmm. and telling the stories and storytelling about the patient that you saw last night and what some of the challenges were, um, that's how you're getting some changes within the hospital. Taking those experiences from, you know, the, the committees to MAC or to the board and, um, and advocating for the patients and for the staff that don't have a, a presence at that table. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that it starts a small scale and yeah. then it evolves, right? Um, kind of like Pokemon. Yeah. You start with the basic Pokemon and you have to yeah. evolve as you go. And so I think the leadership journey that you're describing is definitely that um, you find it and then, and then you need to nurture it and see that yeah. as a side of yourself. I think there's a lot of young, um, very engaged clinicians who sometimes don't see themselves as leadership because or they don't see themselves as leadership potential uh, because they think, oh, I'm just someone that works hard and I've got this way. There's a bit of imposterism that happens, right? Because maybe the leaders that we have right now don't look like them, um, haven't acted like them, don't see things their way. I just Uh, met it with a young staff member and the same thing. And I said, you've been out working, et cetera. And I said, so what are you interested in? What would you like to do? Mm -hmm. And how can I help you? And Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, they were interested in something, mm-hmm. and you suggest either 
a course, a position, and you don't know where that leadership journey is going to take you. And if you're open to um, taking on that level of responsibility, then you, you are down the leadership path. And administrative medicine and leadership medicine, they're, they're not the same thing. Leadership yeah. is for everyone. Um, yeah, and then managerial roles, administrator yeah. roles, titles, those are those are anointed or they're selected. Yeah. They're not necessarily what leaders are made of, right? Yeah, and I, and I think a part of it also is it's a privilege to be able to um, be in a position that you are given the trust to enact um, and um, work for all, all of the people in your department and all of the people in your departments yeah. are your patients and yeah. your staff and your clinicians. Yeah. Um, You've kind of uh, hit on it a couple of times, but you definitely come from the servant leadership kind of like frame of mind, right? Like uh, that when you assume a leadership role, you're there to serve people, that you're there to understand them and, and meet their needs as a leader, right? You, you have the trust of all of them that you're working for them and you, ha- you have a responsibility, right? Yeah. That you're in a position, right? Um, and a part of that is what the board and MAC has you know, pointed you as. Sorry, what's MAC? Uh, the Medical Advisory Committee. Okay, so like the yeah. chiefs of staff and things like yeah. that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's the, the trust and responsibility, but that's also um, your responsibility and your duty. Yeah, yeah, for sure. you got to take care of the people both above and below and make sure everyone's yeah. happy. It puts you in yeah. a, a very, sometimes an awkward position, but I think that if you come at it from how can I serve everyone, yeah. It centers you a little bit more. And if you're working for the patient, it's hard to anyone for argue. Yeah. And say this is, if you're working in the best interests of your patient mm-hmm. at the bedside or even, you know, uh, in the boardroom, it's, it's hard for anyone to, to argue. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's all about finding common ground when you're in these situations anyway, yeah. right? So yeah. I think um, we all get into this business because we want to do great by patients yeah. and we want to minimize harm. We want to maximize probably not necessarily happiness because we're not Disney World but can we make it less bad or less horrible when you're having something that's an emergency or something that's truly distressing to you how can we mitigate that right yeah you know I used to be stuck in traffic and at the same spot you're stuck in traffic all single time Mm -hmm. right and you're sitting there and you see a solution and said you know if they just had a little tiny off-ramp or if they could just extend that road over by three feet you could have cars slip by and I always used to think, whose responsibility is it, right, yeah. to fix this? Yeah. And I thought, it's all of our responsibility. Why did I never send in that one suggestion? Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Find the City Hall webpage and, yeah, and, and, and write them a great email. Because maybe someone hasn't experienced it from your point of view. And I think that's where yeah. an engagement of all our nurses, all our docs, all across our region, right? Whether you live in and work in Oakville or Brampton or Niagara or here in Hamilton, I think... If we can get everyone to rise up and lead just that little bit, then our whole system rises. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the, the whole idea of um, hospital boards and MACs directing, you know, medical advisory committees directing the direction of the hospital, I think that's all changing too. Mm-hmm. And I think it's getting to be a bit more distributive and I think it's getting to be more interprofessional. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, and I think having patients and patient advisors also on on many of these committees and um so it's actually not the providers that are designing the systems and designing the 
the um, the care services right yeah. it's patients actually saying this is what we need this is what we want this is how you can help us so yeah. um so i think healthcare leadership is changing and i think that's a good thing yeah Oh, that's great. That's exciting. Well, thank you very much for spending some time with me to talk about your leadership approach and philosophy. And I think we'll hopefully cycle back to you another time to have some more, some more conversation. Thank, thank you for the opportunity. And, and I really look forward to um, the ability and, and um, the chance to try to do good things. And that's why I said I'm trying to help. Excellent. Cool. Well, thanks so much for helping us out on Macamore's podcast. Thank you. and welcome to another episode of Residence Corner. Today with me, I have the pleasure of having one of my dear colleagues, Dr. Jody Pitchard from the PGY four-year. And I'm very excited to have her here, not just because, like usual, we'll be talking about what her fellowship interests are, but also because Jody is very involved with many other work outside of being an awesome resident. And so the podcast today is going to be a little bit about everything that highlights some of what Jody does outside of the emergency medicine room. Jody, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We're going to get on started with something that was maybe Jody's past, but I know still plays a big role in her current practice. Jody, was a previous paramedic and so I want to know and I say previous but she'll explain that a little bit better um, so I wanted to tell us a little bit about her life prior to starting emergency medicine training yeah as you were saying I worked at, was initially trained as a paramedic uh, I finished my training when the uh, jobs for paramedics were extremely hard to find uh, across the province um, I actually applied to every EMS service in person within driving distance <laughs> of Toronto where I graduated and mailed out resumes uh, to those that were too far to do in my beat up old car um, I actually got quite a few uh, don't bother giving us your resume we don't hire girl conversations which was interesting but uh, uh, jobs were scarce. I eventually got a position in Northern Ontario. From there, essentially, I worked in a uh, some couple of small services, managed to pay off my student debts, uh, and eventually got to the point where I took my advanced care paramedic uh, training, uh, moved to uh, Timmins, so a larger northern community, um, with my then uh, partner, uh, and I was hired on with the air ambulance. From there, I was fortunate to be selective uh, in a competition to take the critical care of flight paramedic training um, and move down to the base in Toronto. It all seems like a really long time ago <laughs> that that happened. After I started working as a critical care paramedic, I had some different positions. So I worked um, at management in the air ambulance and I worked uh, at the base hospital as well. Um, and then eventually ended up getting hurt on a call one day. Um, so it was off uh, helping in the education department um, until they had reconstructive surgery on my wrist. I think that was a bit of a deciding point for me. I knew I wanted to do things in um, medical care and global health. Um, and I took a position to work overseas as a medical coordinator for an NGO in Libya. Essentially, I provided um, medical care as a paramedic. Um, I trained local staff to be paramedics for our teams. Uh, and I taught a medical um, trauma course to the Libyan military that were clearing unexploded ordnance left over from the war. And kind of during my time as a paramedic uh, and while working overseas, essentially, I did my postgraduate um, education. So I got a Bachelor of Health Administration from Ryerson, um, and I had done most of my MPH from the University of Manchester before coming to Mac for med school. 
See, I told you we'd have a lot to talk about. Okay, I'm going to deconstruct those and answer if that's okay, because there's just so much good stuff in there. So, so much experience, obviously, with being a paramedic to begin with. Um, I feel like I should bring you back to the uh, Feminine podcast now, uh, just to talk a little bit more about the challenges that you may have had starting off as a female paramedic uh, at the time. But also, as you could already tell, so much other experience involved, teaching, education, being a paramedic, Libya, uh, and many other NGO uh, companies that you've worked for, rather, um, it sounds like, correct? Yeah, so I, I was fortunate to kind of start to do what I wanted as a paramedic in terms of I worked a couple of countries teaching overseas, which is something that I was really interested in. Um, and that's partially what drove me to do my master's in public health as well. That's amazing. Like you would never, never thought that you have so much experience and so many degrees to be perfectly honest with you. Like, and I just learned a couple of them right now. Now, uh, you told us a little bit about working in uh, Libya and about uh, working with NGOs, but also it seems like your initial interest with global health. And for those of you that don't know, Jody is now doing her fellowship in global health. So her subspecialty year training will be in global health at Queens. Tell us a little bit about why you chose to do, to do your fellowship in this field. Like you're saying, I have had a long-standing interest in doing global health work. Um, I did my master's of public health at the University of Manchester with a global health focus in it. Um, and that was with a view to being able to um, help out more in uh, research in global health, as well as teaching in under-resourced areas. Um, after I got into medical school, really didn't do too much traveling <laughs> in global like health. Like all of us, so that's okay. <laughs> um, but as a resident, I did have an opportunity to go back to doing some global health work. Um, and one of my focuses has been uh, in helping with training for the newly developed emergency medicine residency program in Laos. And I think for me, like my interest in global emergency uh, medicine fellowship um, is just a way for me to round out my experiences that I've had in global health work um, and to get more skills needed to partner with international uh, programs and universities um, to help them assess, uh, design and implement programs within the local context. Awesome. And signposts, we're going to get back to talking more about Laos, just so you know, because that's definitely something that I think everyone should know about. Um, just a little bit more about the year, given that the podcast is focused towards, you know, future uh, interested residents or medical students in this field. What does the year specifically entail and where is it currently offered? So you're doing it in Queens, but is it only offered in Queens in Canada or other places? Yeah, so Queen's is the first Canadian uh, emergency medicine program to have a global health fellowship. They're very common in the States, um, but I'm excited to be joining the Queen's program as the second fellow. So, Gotcha. Very exciting. Groundbreaking, probably. And we'll find out more about the year later on, probably. Um, now, I know you told us a little bit about Libya uh, and your work there, as well as Laos in terms of global health work that you've done there and development of the residency program there. But how did your interest uh, first start into global health? Was it the, through the NGOs? Was it through a particular experience? Was there one interaction that you remember? Or was all of it that, you know, sparked your interest? Yeah, I think probably my interest in health comes from a multitude uh, of things. Um, certainly when I worked in Northern Ontario as a, a flight paramedic up there, I saw a lot of the social determinants of health issues mm. that we see right. in the, um, the big cities down south as well. Um, and that is certainly one of the things that um, sparked my interest. Um, I've also always had, you know, a love of travel and, you know, trying new things and seeing, seeing different places. So I think the, the two things combine well. 
Right, totally. As far as I know from our previous talks together, uh, you have worked overseas in other places, not just Libya and Laos, correct? Uh, that's correct, yeah. So I worked uh, in Libya with my kind of long-term program. I worked there for a year. Uh, I've done some teaching in uh, Cambodia and Ghana before medical school. Um, and then in residency, uh, Laos has been most of my teaching focus. I did some uh, an elective in South Africa as well. Gotcha. Um, and Laos specifically, you said that you're currently helping with the curriculum development for the new EM residents, correct? And this is the second year that they've had EM residents? Uh, yeah, so they started in September two years ago. I went last year to do some bedside teaching. Um, and then this year I went back again to for a month, essentially, to teach one of their core curriculum blocks and to do more bedside teaching as well. And it sounds like you love that experience. And I feel like every time you come back, you always have a big smile on your face, if I may say so. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly it's a challenging place. So emergency medicine there, this is a brand new specialty, a mm. brand new program. Um, so obviously there's a lot of challenges in terms of uh, that, but the residents are all, it's just nice work with people that are very keen and will be the future leaders um, in the emergency rooms there. Right. Definitely something aspiring for sure. Now, how can current medical students, residents or staff for that matter, get a taste of what this type of work involves specifically? Say I had an interest in getting some more exposure to global health. Um, I think it really depends on on what the person means by global health. So to me, the term global health is more uh, about the, the what and the whys of, mm -hmm. of the location. Um, the big things for me that I find global health focuses on is you know, cultural competence when working with different cultural settings, whether that be you know, groups within Ontario, we certainly have a very diverse country. Mm -hmm. um, learning how to recognize inequalities, I think is another um, important thing, again, whether at home or abroad. Uh, using your voice to advocate for others, and how do you, uh, I would say, I guess, facilitate uh, resilience and self-advocacy skills in others, I think is important, whether you're looking at a uh, low middle income country, whether you're looking at some of our uh, populations in Ontario. For sure. And I can certainly speak from my own experience. There's always this connotation that like to do global health, people think that they have to go to a third world country, right? It's almost like it, the two come hand in hand, but not necessarily. We forget about the opportunities that are locally here, whether that's within the GTA truly, or even like within Canada, at least from my personal experience. Um, and if there's one take home message, Jody, that you'd like people to leave with, get them excited for global health, or maybe all of the awesome things you've done with your career so far, uh, what would that be? Um, I think my big take home is just explore and find ways to do what you're passionate about in your medical career. Um, it certainly makes you a happier person, I think, a more, more fulfilled right. person. Um, and, you know, in terms of the, the group of people that are within medicine, I think our diverse backgrounds, our cultural and socioeconomic diversity is what makes us all unique, but complementary to each other. And, you know, working together and having diverse groups is what helps us advocate and support our patient populations, regardless of what country we're in. Right. So whether you need to go to Laos, Libya, South Africa, or Hamilton, or Northern Ontario, whether whatever that may be, without picking one particular area, there's always opportunities, it sounds like, to learn more about it and to expose yourself to what the diversity is out there. Well, thank you very much to everyone for listening in. Thank you to Jody for being here. Uh, and so nice to speak to you and learn a little bit more about you, to be honest with you, that I personally did not know myself. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for inviting me. All right. To our listeners, see you next time. Are you tired of boring teaching? 
Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts! All right, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Teaching That Counts. I'm here with my co-host, Alim Naji. Hey, everyone. Welcome back for another segment. Uh, glad you made it through the another month of uh, Emerge Shifts and are back here to, uh, to nerd out with us. Excellent. And we have a very interesting topic today, which I think was revolutionary for me when I was um, transitioning from junior to senior resident. And so this is totally applicable to anyone who's teaching. Um, whether it's uh, you're teaching at home to your kids or you're teaching at home uh, to your spouse, which you're not supposed to do, but you do anyway sometimes, <laughs> um, or that you're teaching in the emergency department because sometimes there are teachable moments that we just let fly by and we thought we were teaching, but, uh, but the other person just thought we were talking to them, right? I'm sure you have that with, I have that with my partner all the time um, and we're just crossing paths and we just cross purposes, right? So sure. I would imagine that with any interpersonal relationship, there's like a bound to be the situation. And as teachers, um, we all want to make sure that our learners really just absorb the moment, right? When you are trying, going out of your way to actually give them some feedback or some teaching pearls, uh, we want to like just put a big signpost up or fireworks and Ta-da! Teaching, right? Um, but, th- I mean, you won't do it that way, right? Like, h- how, how would you suggest that we go about this? I, I think you have to look for these moments, and I totally agree. My first year as staff, I was missing them, and I, I wasn't recognizing where there was that real pearl that, that a learner could take away. And so now I think about it like a disturbance in the force. And every time <laughs> it that. happens, I, like, pause, and the lights come on, that single spotlight. You know that one in the back in the procedure room? That comes onto my face, and the, the music kind of comes in the background, and I'm like... This is a teachable moment. <laughs> exactly, right? Like you, you wanna you wanna make sure that you highlight it. I think Yoda does it well, yeah, Obi-Wan does it well. Sure. So we wanna be like them, for right? For sure, for sure. This is devolving into a very nerdy subject, but <laughs> I love it. Okay. Alright, so so let's um let's talk a little bit about how you might do that. So what are some things that people can do? So I think the big thing here is to recognize when you're in a scenario where the learner is either uncomfortable because that's often a, a huge area of learning, yeah. right? So did you hear a presentation and you're like, whoa, they, they really whiffed it. So there's yeah. a teachable moment in there. What's the big takeaway yeah. that we can kind of dive into? Yeah. When you see really sick patients, that's another mm-hmm. common time I'll do that. When we step outside the room, mm-hmm. I'll kind of let things settle down, decompress the emotions, and then I'll step back and say, what's the real takeaway? What's the real teachable moment here? Yeah. Procedures is kind of the most common time that you'll do this, right? So you see some suturing, you see a central line being put in, you see an intubation mm-hmm. attempt. And really stepping back and saying, if you were to do this again in the future, what would you do differently? What would you do the same? So those moments are key. And we have so much evidence that if you continually do the same activity, so you're Austin Matthews and you're working on your shot, and no one ever gives you feedback, you're never going to get better. And so that's why we have this whole apprenticeship model. So these teachable moments are crucial, crucial to learning. Yeah, so as a pearl to all of those who are interested in education stuff, that would be the difference between practice and deliberate practice. For sure. So the idea would be that uh, you don't just want to rinse and repeat, you want to get feedback from your mom about whether or not you separated the colors well. Right? <laughs> like, um, Wait, you know. you're supposed to separate colors? What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of stuff that we want to um, highlight, is that um, when you walk into a laundry load of pink laundry, now is the time to reframe and debrief with your kid that that red shirt could not go in with the whites, right? The same thing would be uh, that uh, 
the uh, the suturing, the mo motion that you use. Let's practice on a banana peel. Let's talk about the circular motion of your wrist and, and drive with that rather than like awkwardly trying to like hold positions or trying to do some kind of like contortion <laughs> in order to accommodate the patient and not setting up, you know, the patient at you know, your standing height, for instance. These are all things that we often see and we're like, ooh, that was super awkward. And then you can stop and pause and think, okay, how might we do this better next time? Even if it was done and was done sufficiently, that maybe you kind of didn't need to be there, but like, yeah, you know, like it could be a little bit better and better for them, right? Yeah, and once you've identified those moments, the second step is to really tag that moment for the learner itself. So making sure that they identify that you're about to enter a teaching moment. Yes. And this is huge because I can't recall how many times I'd, I'd ask residents how our shifts went at the mm. end of the day and they'd be like, well, you could do more teaching. I'm like, we just talked for like 20 minutes about this case, right? Yeah. And so if you're not roadmapping to the learners that yeah. this is a moment where you're going to be teaching, yeah. sometimes that gets missed. And this is also a helpful technique where if you're teaching a group of learners from varying ranges, so you have the med student, you have the junior resident, you have the senior resident all working with you at the same yeah. time, tagging that moment um, as teaching and then scaffolding the objectives for each of those groups can be a really powerful way to engage them. So pulling them all into the conversation so that they're not just sitting there and they're disengaged. Yeah, yeah. I think tagging and flagging. So what I do sometimes is actually I give them a little written receipt. So I get a prescription pad out or something like that and I give them an actual teaching point sometimes I've taken to using post-it pearls which is something that some of my colleagues in the U.S. pioneered like Michelle Lin from yeah. UCSF and Rob Cooney um, have been using these they they write a one sticky note uh, depiction of the the main teaching point that they had from an encounter it also keeps me from like doing five teaching points <laughs> for like a single patient which yeah. is like cognitive overload right like sure. there's tagging and there's doing it and then there's some of us who get too enthusiastic and I think that this is a way to like portion out let's say so it's like more like a tasting menu not just like a giant buffet i love that i do a prescription pad so i do a learning prescription because i always got the prescription pad in my back pocket mm -hmm. and so i'll pull it out i'll write on it and i'll give it yeah. to the learner yeah. and i ask them every time we review a case to give that prescription back to me and i add to it yeah. this it makes it so much easier to do those final evaluations at the end of your shift yes because then you're, at the end of the day you're like so what cases did i see with you what cases did i see on my yeah. own what cases yeah. did i see with another learner you can get feedback yeah and you can remember it just yeah. really helps anchor our conversation at the end of the day too yeah. and then the learner goes home with something tangible so that when you're yeah. giving that generic read around your cases advice they actually have a sense of like yeah. these are the things that I need to look into more these are the areas where I actively struggled today or excelled yeah so uh, the University of Saskatchewan does this on the back of their teaching evaluation form is a little log that you they log with each case and the teaching point and and I think that what you're talking about is very similar so it's almost like you're charting on your learner after every case too which I think is brilliant yeah. so definitely that's like easy thing to do I wouldn't put any patient specific so the learners likes to take these home yeah. or at least partition it so that you could tear off the names mm -hmm. and just have a skeleton left of what the patient is and it's a great way for you to use as an aide de memoir at the end of your shift when you're like oh what case did I see with you and then you're like oh yeah you did these things well and these things you could improve on and just summarize again because sometimes that's what it is is that um, we need to give them evidence but we also like written evidence is another way of giving that evidence and flagging that you did do some teaching in fact it's like a grocery list right when you go to the grocery store and you don't have a list and you're just wandering around and you end up with like roasted red pepper hummus and you're like I don't even like this flavor right yeah. you need some type of written thing to take home so yeah. that it gives you a something yeah. a framework for, for yeah. you to study on build on otherwise 
you will give generic feedback like "good job," "read more," because <laughs> you know the four most famous Keen and words. Interested. Right? Yeah, yeah. Those are like those are those are generic things because we forgot the specifics. And so if we just chart as we go, like you know, it's the same thing as charting at the end of your shift versus charting after each patient. Um, it's actually the same, I, I think, as like discharge instructions, right? Like, so you have these sheets that you print out, you give it to the patients, and patients are happy as clams. They got something from the doctor, even if you said you don't need anything else other than like time because your viral illness will end. Um, giving the learner something like, you do need more time and exposure to this disorder, but I can't give you that this shift but you should be mindful next time, yada, yada, yada. So I think that like giving them something physical also reminds and flags that for people. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, sometimes instead of an actual um, explanation, it might be a resource that you're giving them, yeah. right? So you might be like, hey, look, we talked about ECGs today. You seem to really struggle with these rhythms. Go check out Life in the Fast Lane. I yeah. want you to look at these types of EKGs. Yeah. And next shift, we're going to touch base and look at that, right? Yeah. So you're, you're also creating a bit of a learning contract with that mm -hmm. then as well, right? Your commitment to say to the learner, I'm going to follow up on what you're going to study on mm -hmm. so that we can learn and grow together. I also yeah. love this for when I have no idea, right? You know, you yeah. get you get that case which is the weird and wonderful or that yeah. specific thing that was buried at some chapter in Rosen's or Tint that you can't recall. Also creating that contract with the learner is helpful around a, a teachable moment there. Yeah, for sure. Um, and sometimes during shift, if we talk about a paper and they've never read it, I'll find a blog post, just hit Google, like, and just find it. Google Foam is a resource you can use. So yeah. uh, foamsearch.net is the place that you go and it just, you can Google FOMED resources and find them something and then email it to them. And I do that from my phone so that I can just like email it directly. Um, and, and that's another way to show a receipt, right, of, of, your, of your teaching. That's awesome. So today we talked really about recognizing those teachable moments, those aha moments. I want you to think like you're on the Jedi Council and, and every time these happen, I want you to hear Yoda's voice reminding you to tag that teachable moment. Mm. And then the next thing would be to make sure that uh, you also think about how you might actually generate some artifact that then lends evidence that the teaching in fact happened. So whether it's post-it pearls or a learning receipt or a, or a prescription pad, uh, these are things that you can use to just up your game just that little bit and you'll be surprised. Like all of a sudden people will see that you're teaching all the time. It's just that they needed that reaffirmation. Oh yeah, you need the proof. It's like the selfie. If it didn't, if it, uh, no selfie, it didn't happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no picture, <laughs> no, event didn't happen, exactly. So, anyway, so thank you so much everyone for your time and uh, tune in next time for another episode. See you guys later. That's all we have for this month's Teaching That Counts. Tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl to up your game. Special shout out to Krista Dauhos, one of our family medicine residents who's played an integral part in making all these lovely infographics that we'll have for you in the show notes. And thanks to John Sherbino for his mentorship. See you next time. tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back emerge out!